and Christmas shopping in the crowded mall. Of course, tired of fighting the crowds, tired of standing in line, she was tired of fighting her way down long aisles, looking for a gift that was sold out days before. Her arms were full of bulky packages, and an elevator door opens, and of course, the elevator's full, and the occupants of the elevator grudgingly move aside in tight ranks to allow a small space for her and all of her packages. As the doors close, she blurts out, you know, whoever's responsible for this whole Christmas thing ought to be arrested, strung up, and shot. And a few others nodded their heads or grunted in agreement. And then from somewhere in the back of the elevator came a small voice that said, don't worry, because they already crucified him. I think it's pretty common for those of us who follow Jesus bemoan sort of that Christ has been taken out of Christmas in so many ways in our culture. Wherever you go, it kind of feels like that. You know, there's a lot more emphasis on other things. But I think what's scary to me, at least, is how easily we ourselves succumb to that. How often do each of us find ourselves, as the holidays are here, exhausted Overspent on the credit cards. Overeaten. <laughs> Overcelebrated, whatever it is, right? There's family Christmas things and church Christmas things and work Christmas things and friend Christmas things and this Christmas thing and that Christmas thing and Uncle Bob's cat's Christmas thing and all this stuff, right? It just wears us out and we run around and we spend too much money and we eat too much food. And after the holidays, of course, we complain, never again. And then what do we do next year? Back to the same stuff. We should be, instead, filled with wonder and joy. Not because of gifts under the tree, but because of the gift of Jesus from heaven. And I wonder if part of that, I mean, this is just my theory, is that maybe we don't take enough time to remind ourselves just how amazing this whole birth of Jesus thing is. Seeing how God predicted and promised and fulfilled all these events of Jesus birth hundreds of years before the actual events happened, I think should fill us with awe at how amazing Christmas really is. So we're going to look this morning at a few of these prophecies to kind of up our wonder factor at Christmas. Now next Sunday, Dr. Dan Andrews is going to be here in the pulpit, and he's going to talk about how Christmas is presented in the Torah, five books of Moses. Then I'll be back on the third Sunday of Advent with uh, some more Christmas in the Prophets, and then it almost sort of sounds like a Hallmark movie, Christmas in the Prophets. <laughs> I need to have more of a chiseled jaw, and two days growth of beard. My wife would need to own some store that she left the city right from to take over the family <laughs> store in a small town. That's right, right. Always a festival. Yeah, exactly. And, and of course, uh, yeah. The, the store wouldn't sell anything that anybody wants because they never actually sell anything. So on the third Sunday in Advent, we'll talk about more Christmas in the Prophets, and then Dr. Andrews will be back on Christmas Eve, where we'll 
talk about we stand for one morning service. And he's going to talk about the Christ child in the Psalms. So once again, you get the, the fun split advent of me and Dan sharing the pulpit duty. Um, always a good time. Also tonight, sit with my wife for a couple Sundays. <laughs> and Renee gets her husband for a couple Sundays. <laughs> but he doesn't travel. We're going to start in Isaiah with God with us, the promise of Emmanuel. It says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Then he said, Listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now this is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. It says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Isaiah 7, 13 and 14 announces the birth of this wondrous child through a virgin as a sign of deliverance to the whole house of David, the birth of the Messiah by the miracle of being born from a virgin. This passage, which is then quoted, by the angel to Joseph in Joseph's dream to explain what excuse me, happened with Mary is then included in Matthew as, as one of the many fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah. Now in the original context in Isaiah, the promise is a promise both of deliverance and judgment on the house of David. And you notice that it says that it's addressed to the whole house of David versus just the king Ahaz, who was the king at the time which I think is meant to give us some idea of the larger scope. It's, about, it's much more than just about something that was happening in Judah at the time. Now, King Ahaz ruled the southern kingdom of Judah, and at the time of Isaiah 7, the kingdom of Judah was under attack from the northern kingdom of Israel, who had allied themselves with Syria. And so the first, the sign and the promise of Isaiah 7, 14, God is telling the house of David, that the alliance of Syria and Israel, they're not going to win. He's not going to allow someone who's not a descendant of David to sit on the throne of David. So it is a promise of deliverance originally to Judah, to King Ahaz, and a promise of judgment on the northern kingdom, kingdom of Israel. <clears throat> but it's important, I think, to remember that by this time, even the line of David had spiritually degenerated. Many of the kings were not like David. They had been very wicked. <coughs> not that David was a perfect human. 
but many of the kings that followed him were wicked kings. And the prophecy is also a warning that there was going to be coming a descendant of David who was going to be a perfect ruler. He was going to be unique because he would be born of a virgin and he would be God willing. And of course, we know, because we can look back at the prophecy from a New Testament perspective, that this wasn't just about the deliverance of Judah, but in fact, <coughs> I hope I'm not getting this over. My poor wife started with a cold. I kept my business. I locked myself in my office. So finally, we know that it's, it's a promise that there's going to be something more that's going to happen. It's going to be the birth of a marvelous child who would be called Emmanuel, who is God with him, who would be the ultimate deliverance for not just Judah, but for all of us. Now, there is a son born in the next chapter, in Isaiah, who becomes sort of a confirmation of this prophecy in chapter 7, that the nation of Judah would not fall to this alliance from the north, and they didn't. But it's interesting, his name, this child that's born, is not Emmanuel, nor is Jesus, it is Mayor Shuttle Hashbag. I don't know about you, but that is probably, not, that was, when Jen and I were thinking about names for our kids if we had a boy, Mayor Shuttle Hashbag was not on the list. I'm just telling you. Thanks for wondering. Right? I mean, try to nickname any of your boys as Mayor Shuttle Hashbag. Not a common name. Most of us go with means in Hebrew, swift to the spoil and speedy to the prey. Explaining that whole situation would take a whole other sermon, so I'm not going to go there. You can read about it sometime. But the point is that that child is clearly not the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Judah was delivered, for sure. But of course, we know they would eventually fall. Some couple hundred years hence. That's not the final word for this promise. Because we know the actual fulfillment is in the New Testament. That there would truly be one born who can be called Emmanuel. Because he would be God and man, conceived miraculously in the Virgin. He would be the one who Isaiah will also refer to in chapter 9, verse 6, as the one who's called Mighty God. And in chapter 11, the one who would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And a whole bunch of other things that Isaiah talks about. Now, I think it's very interesting to know there is no child recorded in scripture whose mother or father actually names them Emmanuel. No son of Isaiah, no other contemporary is ever called Emmanuel. When Christ is born, it says he's named Jesus, right? The Lord saves. No one names him Emmanuel. There's a reason for that, I think. We tend to think of Emmanuel when we read it in Isaiah or when we read it elsewhere as a name. But I would argue Emmanuel is a title and a description of who the child would be. God with us in the flesh. And Jesus is the only person in Scripture 
who can fully fulfill Isaiah 7, 14, because he is the only person that is God with us. The original partial fulfillment in Isaiah 8 did show that God was still with Judah, right? God delivered Judah from Israel, but he was with them in that sense. But only Jesus is truly God with us. And so I think the first wonder of Christmas prophecy is that Jesus is God with us. 700 years before the time of Jesus, God promised that there would come a time when one would be born that would be God with us. He would come to earth as one of us. He would be born as we are born. He would live among us. Right? Didn't John say the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelled among us? And then he would bring life and he would bring salvation. And I love that the title he has given 700 and some years before his birth and the title that the angel uses to refer to him to explain to Joseph what's going on is God with us. It is not God judging us. It is not God against us. It is God with us. And God with us has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Now there's another miracle here in this prophecy that's fulfilled in Luke's gospel account, and that is when it says that the virgin shall be with child. That's what Luke says. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Did you catch that? What did he say? Who's with her? The Lord is with you. God with us. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God with us, but you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and for his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The second wonder in Isaiah chapter 7 is the actual method of conception, where Jesus is born to a woman who is a virgin. Now, modern scholars obviously love to dispute the nature of this conception. How can I? we understand biology? A virgin can't have a child. In fact, one of the first things that those who wish to discredit the Bible often attack is the virgin birth of Christ. It's one of the favorite attacks. Now, the word here in Isaiah, when it says the virgin will conceive, is the word in Hebrew, Alma, like everybody, which means a young, unmarried, and chaste woman. Alma represents a young woman 
who has not been married or met with a man. This is supported by a whole lot of evidence. First of all, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament done a couple hundred years before Jesus, when translating Isaiah 7.14, it uses the Greek word parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin. There is no instance in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where the word alma can be shown to designate a young woman who is not also a virgin. It's only used in that case. It is the only Hebrew word that unequivocally signifies an unmarried woman. There's no other Hebrew word that would clearly indicate the one who designates, it designates as unmarried. Now, it's sometimes argued that in Hebrew, there is a more precise word for virgin, Bethulah. But this word is not always used of just a virgin, but it can mean someone who's engaged. Or in Joel 1.8, it's even used as someone who's actually married. So it's actually not as distinct as on. And Isaiah used that word, he could have left us in confusion or with the wrong idea, but not so with Alma. That's why this word, I think, is chosen in Hebrew. He is speaking of a young, unmarried virgin who conceives miraculously. Because that's the only Hebrew word that combines the ideas of virginity and being unmarried. And in the New Testament, the word parthenos is also only used to ever refer to a virgin. And if you think about it, the emphasis in the whole story, my iPad is becoming very weird. The emphasis in the whole story, okay, is that Mary had never been with Joseph. Why does she wonder? Why does she say? Because she's never been intimate. The whole story rides on this fact. She herself wonders because she knows she's never been with man. How can this be? She says. The story rides on this fact. The entire narrative flows on that. Why would God have to convince Joseph to take her as his wife if Joseph knew that he was the father? Doesn't have to. So in this way, Jesus would be born, not by normal conception, but by a miracle work of God, so that the one who is born God with us is going to come by such a miraculous means that we should not be able to mistake his amazing arrival in the world. That he's very special. So God not only planned to become God with us, which is a wonder in itself, fulfilling a prophecy from over 700 years before, he does it by the miracle of a virgin birth, which is amazing. And then he clearly and carefully chooses the place of entrance into the world, as he chooses the place of birth. Like 5 2. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child, and the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. You know, this is fulfilled in the New Testament. It says, The days. 
A decree went out from Caesar Augustus for the census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now Matthew also has a take on this in chapter 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The Messiah was going to be born, he was going to be born in Bethlehem. Predicted hundreds of years before. And you notice, they understood that, because when Herod asked his spiritual leaders, they knew exactly what the answer was. Right? Michael 5 2. He was to be born in Bethlehem. It was understood that that's where the Messiah was to be born. Now, it's interesting, there is really no direct reason given in Micah why Bethlehem is chosen to be the birthplace of the Messiah. Maybe because Bethlehem was so small and insignificant, it would be hard to mistake a birth there. But Bethlehem was a small town, probably smaller than Duncan. I don't know. I think it'd be hard to mistake the birth of a baby there to a virgin as anything other than what it was, the Messiah. Maybe it's because Bethlehem was considered the ancestral home of David's line, and the Messiah had to be from the tribe of Judah and the line of David, right, to fulfill the Davidic promises. The association with Bethlehem would be part of the proof of that. See, but there's a problem. And the problem is that um, they're like 80 miles from Bethlehem, okay, when they're living. Because we're told that Joseph, they're from Nazareth, okay, it's up here. Bethlehem's down here, okay. Um, long way. Especially back then. I don't know about you, but I'm not up for necessarily an 80 mile walk just because the Emperor wants me to go wander around. Especially, I'm trying to imagine, I'm just thinking back to when my wife was greatly with child and near to be delivering of the children. I don't think the 80 mile trip by a foot or donkey would have exactly been top of her list of things to do. But anyway, Mary and Joseph, they're, they're Nazareth, they're 80 miles from Bethlehem. But the Messiah, to fulfill prophecy, and for whatever other reasons, needs to be born in Bethlehem. So what does God do? <coughs> he moves Caesar Augustus to have a, a census of the entire Roman Empire. 
which required everyone to go register at their ancestral homes. And so since Joseph was from the line of David in the tribe of Judah, he had to go to Bethlehem, his ancestral home. And the fulfillment of this prophecy isn't just about God knowing or planning where Jesus would be born. It's about showing how powerful God is and that he can make the entire world do his bidding in order to get one little woman with one little baby to one particular little town so her baby can be born in the right place at the right time. Now, if you ask me, that is absolutely astonishing. He doesn't send Joseph a dream. Oh, Joseph, you need to get married in Bethlehem. This baby can be born in Bethlehem, for he shall be of the line of David. No, doesn't do that, right? I mean, he doesn't have an angel visit. Say, quick, go to Bethlehem, hurry up, here's the donkey, go. Doesn't do that. I mean, in the Christmas story, doesn't he do both those things at various times? Send an angel, send, tell Joseph things in dreams, right? And Joseph would obey because uh, we know in other parts of the scripture when Joseph has some of these dreams, it says he immediately got up and they went to Egypt or whatever. No, 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 nothing like that. Instead, God makes everyone in the Roman Empire travel to their ancestral homes to be counted in an empire-wide census. This means millions and millions of people. I mean, I mean probably millions of people just in Palestine. All had to travel to register for the census, just so Mary would be in Bethlehem at the right time, in the right place, for Jesus to be born. That's pretty amazing. See, it's not, not just that there's a cute baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. Christmas season, even that, the baby would grow up. He'd be a great teacher, preacher of love and repentance. Makes Christmas so wonderful. What I think makes Christmas so full of wonder is how many different ways we see it's the implementation of God's plan predicted hundreds of years before to save his people from their sins, to make himself known to us, to literally be God with us, Emmanuel. It is the beginning of his fulfillment of his promises to Israel in the Davidic covenant. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham that all the world would be blessed through Jesus. And God does it through unmistakable prophetic fulfillments of things that have been predicted hundreds, 700 plus years beforehand. And so Christmas isn't just the gifts and the trees, all that stuff. Fun music, right, that we used to sing. I mean, I, I love Christmas music. I like the old Christmas music. I like the new Christmas music. I like I like almost all the Christmas music. Almost all. Probably a couple of them. Although, what was it last year? There was a song I used to never like until we did it, and they were like, we did something. Do you hear what I hear? Yeah. I used to never like that song until we did it one Christmas is our yearly reminder that God's plan all along
in such a way that there should be no mistaking the incredible significance of what was happening. That the power of God is on display over hundreds of years, working and culminating with a baby in a manger, born in the right place, at the right time, exactly as God had planned. The virgin, the child, God with us, Bethlehem, not just cute events in a Christmas play, but it's fulfilled promises of God who loves us so much that he sent his own son to redeem us from sin and darkness and make us into his own Christmas baby. Let's pray. Father, we begin Season of Advent. I pray that we can begin this season of Advent meditating on the wonder of how you worked for hundreds of years, even thousands of years, from the time of Abraham, even from that first promise in Genesis chapter 3. The coming of God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus, born of a virgin in the right place at the right time. Predicted and planned and then worked out exactly as you said it would be. Help us to start our Advent journey this year by thinking about how amazing it is that you did these things so that the Christ child would come into the world and be God with us. And is God with us even now presence in our hearts through your spirit. And we'll give you the glory.